Of all the books that I had to read for English class in high school, there are very few that I actually kept. But Heart of Darkness is one of them. This is actually my high school copy that I still have with the things I underlined and the pages I marked. Which is kind of strange to me because it's, honestly, it's a, a kind of depressing book. There is a lot of dark stuff in here. There, there's some of the stuff, some of the injustice and the racism that the author doesn't even really own up to make it a difficult read. And besides, who honestly wants to read a book that is going to tell me I have a heart of darkness? Like that is any of your business, Joseph Conrad. <laughs> Keep it to yourself, right? And yet I think what has made me come back to that book is that there is something in there, something in those themes that resonates with me. You know, that I, I don't actually need a book to tell me that there are places in my life, there are shadows, there have been secrets, there are things that I would look at and say, I wish I hadn't done those things. I wish that that was different. I wish there was a solution to this. You know, I don't have to tell you that just like Marlowe discovers, the world can be a very dark place. I, I remember driving home from Minnesota about a year ago, taking 694 around Minneapolis and all the signs over the interstate say curfew, 8 p.m. Because of what happened to George Floyd, all the unrest that followed that, all the conversations that has sparked over the last year. You know, I think about the depression, the isolation, the disease, the death that has gone hand in hand, the frustration with the pandemic. Just the news cycle in the last couple of weeks, a shooting at a massage parlor, another one at a grocery store. As much as I'd like to just watch March Madness and forget about it all, the reality is there are times that the world feels really dark. And you know, when Annie Lennox wrote that song, Sweet Dreams, she, her own words, she said it came at an extremely dark time in her life when it felt like everything was falling apart. And, and like Marlo, she would be willing to sail the world and the seven seas looking for a solution. And it's a solution that, that Marlo in the book does not find. When he finally gets to Kurtz, when he meets this guy who was the best and the brightest and the most successful that had somehow given in to like every bit of darkness that can show up in the human heart. To greed, to lying, to injustice, to racism, cheating on his fiance, every temptation it seems like he had given into until he finally dies. And at the end of the book, as Marlowe is sailing away, he's not sailing into a sunset. He actually describes it like this. He says that as he raised his head, what he saw ahead of him was barred by a black bank of clouds and the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost ends of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness the end that's it the rest of this is actually a different short story it's it's hopeless and there's no solution and you know I think that's actually what captured me about this book because a few years after I read this, I started really reading another book that hits a lot of the same topics, a lot of those same themes about what can go wrong in the world, not just out there, but in here too. But it was a book with a different ending, a book that offered a better ending. And it's probably not a surprise to you that, that I'm talking about the Bible. 
In fact, in the Bible, I don't know if you knew this, there are actually four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And one of those is by a very close friend of his named John. And as John writes his biography of Jesus' life, he uses these metaphors of light and darkness. In fact, one of the first things he writes is that in him, in Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. You see, that caught me because it makes me think that maybe the solution has been there all along and Marlowe just didn't understand it. Maybe I didn't understand it. Maybe I didn't want to understand it. But is it possible that the Bible offers something different, something hopeful, some life, some light, so that I can actually sing along with credence that I'll be coming home soon. Like I'll be okay as long as I can see the light. And so I think that's what I want for us today. We're, we're going to explore a little bit of this biography so that you can understand the light, so that you can see in the darkness. That whatever you face within yourself, it is not a surprise to God. That whatever we face in the world around us, it is not a surprise to God. That if we can understand the light, we can see in the darkness. So if, if John's going to set this up as, as if Jesus is the light of the world, then to understand the light, we actually have to look at Jesus' darkest moment. It's the moment of his death. The moment that he was hanging on a cross, betrayed by everyone around him. A moment that the Bible describes as Jesus taking on all of the darkness in us and around us so that he can offer us forgiveness. Paying a penalty he didn't deserve, dying a death he didn't deserve. And in one of these other biographies, one by a historian named Luke, Luke describes that moment on the cross, what we'll remember this Friday like this. He says, now it was about the sixth hour. And as the way they counted that, that would be noon, high noon, middle of the day. It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Notice that this looks like a moment of defeat, but it's actually a moment of victory. See, because Jesus was facing the darkness. So, so what is this darkness? Is that, is that literal? Is that a metaphor? Well, let's think of it first as a symbol. Because what the Bible describes that Jesus is doing on the cross is that he is taking on everything that makes the world dark and God's response to it, right? That when I make mistakes, like places I don't live up to my own standard, like my own moral code, things I wish I hadn't done, let alone God's, that can be frustrating to me, disappointing to me. I want to do better. I want to try. God feels that too. When I see things in the news that I can't believe, you know, injustice that happens or this ugly thing or that depressing thing. When I see disease and all of that around me, God feels that too. In fact, God, because he is good and because he is righteous, he is angry at evil 
and he has to deal with it. He can't ignore it. He can't just say, ah, hey, you know, we all make mistakes. Whatever, whatever, do your best, right? God has to deal with it. But because he loves us, because he loves you, it says that he sent his son, right? That's the whole John 3, 16 thing. Same biography. God so loved the world, he sent his only son that he could take that for us, that he could face my darkness so that I can see light. Okay, so there is that symbolic part of it. But then again, Luke seems to be describing this as a literal event. I mean, he counts the hours from the sixth hour to the ninth. That would be noon to 3 p.m., three hours of darkness in the middle of the day. Well, maybe that's an eclipse, right? I mean, that happens. We have solar eclipses where the sun is blocked out. Only here's the thing. NASA can actually project because we know how our planet moves, the sun moves. We, don't, we know how all of these things work together. They can project every eclipse that our planet has ever experienced and every one that it ever will. And the longest eclipse they've managed to find? Seven minutes and 29 seconds. Okay. On top of that, it can't be an eclipse because the Passover, by law, the Passover which Jesus came into Jerusalem to celebrate, the Bible says he died during the Passover celebration by law, occurs at the new moon. Now, to have an eclipse, you need a full moon. Like there has to be something there to block the sun. But Passover happens at a new moon when that would be literally impossible. Just another place that the Bible must have gotten it wrong, right? Well, not necessarily. In fact, within these pages, as Luke records this history, he's not the only historian to record this. There are other historians, some of them who are not Christ followers from that same generation who are actually Greek or Roman who record this same event. One of those is from a guy named Phlegon. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I know it sounds like Egon from the Ghostbusters, but he was a Greek historian in the first century and he wrote that in the fourth year of their Olympiad 202, which would line up with the time of Christ's death, He actually thinks it's an eclipse. He says an eclipse of the sun happened, but greater, more excellent than any that had happened before it. At the sixth hour, day turned into dark night so that the stars were seen in the sky. Now there are other historians. There's Tertullian, there's Lucian, Julius, Africanus. All of these I won't read to you, but I love this kind of stuff because some of them explain why Phlegon's right about the event, but wrong about it being an eclipse, but something must have happened here and people know about it and you can check your own history books. Whatever it was, it happened. So, So why am I sharing this with you? Well, the reason is that on one level, we look for a natural reason for this. But if the God of the Bible is who the Bible claims that he is, it would actually be weird if he didn't do supernatural things. I mean, I mentioned that Good Friday is coming up this week. We're going to celebrate, remember Jesus' death. In fact, we're even doing an online Good Friday service to just take a few moments, online only, to reflect on what his death means for us and our forgiveness. But then a couple days later, we're having an Easter celebration live here in the building, live online, on demand later, because he rose again. That's a miracle, right? If he doesn't do that, he's just another guy that died. I can do that. But to raise himself from the dead? If God is who he says he is, it would be strange for him not to do supernatural things. And so to also have it recorded in this history, 
You see that God uses historical and supernatural events to prove that he is trustworthy and that the Bible is trustworthy too. That if he's right about that darkness, then maybe it's possible that he's actually right about my own need for forgiveness. And there's a story in John's biography that illustrates this perfectly. I love this because there's this group of guys that show up to Jesus and all these guys are holding stones, rocks in their hand because they found a woman caught in adultery. We found the darkness, Jesus. Here it is. Here's somebody doing something bad and they are ready by their law to stone her to death. And so they want to know what is Jesus going to do about this? What is his reaction going to be? And so I love this because when they walk up to Jesus, this is what Jesus says. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Notice he doesn't say, hey, any of you who at least haven't done what she's done. Any of you who think like, hey, I know the world is a dark place, but I'm not as bad as that thing I saw in the news or that other guy over there. No, he says, let those of you who have never done anything wrong. You've never done anything that doesn't live up to your own standard, let alone God's. You've never even told a little white lie. Anybody who has none of that, you go first. Check out what happens. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one. They left, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. You see, when I read that, I think that is so striking because a lot of times it is much easier to see the darkness out there, what somebody else did, why they're the problem, why they're worse than me, than to stop for a minute and think, maybe there's something in me too, right? That maybe there is something in my own heart. And I know, honestly, I've probably been both people in this story, that sometimes I'm the woman. I'm doing something that I know it is wrong. I know it's hurting me. I mean, think about how that would hurt her family. And whoever the guy is that they just happened to not bring, hurt his family too, hurt, hurt them. You know, sometimes I know that I'm the person who's, I know what I'm doing is wrong and I'm doing it anyway. You know, and I could tell you stories of my life of giving in to lust, giving in to anger, you know, language that I've used, lies that I've told, things I've taken that aren't my own. I mean, you you go down the Ten Commandments and I got to admit that I've broken all of them. You know, that there are still places where I think, I'm not just that lady, I'm these guys too. That we can be so self-righteous that like, I don't want Heart of Darkness telling me that I I might have, maybe maybe, maybe I'm not as bad as Kurtz, but ah, Marlo is making mistakes too. Marlo catches himself lying I mean, we can see Marlowe's racism too, his prejudice. Well, well, maybe I do need to stop and reflect that sometimes it's easy for me to complain about somebody else without looking into my own heart. In fact, there's a moment for Marlowe that really makes this hit home for him as he's watching Kurtz die. That Kurtz, who was the best and the brightest, who was wealthy and successful and important and powerful and yet slowly gave in to all of these things. I mean, there's a point where Kurtz literally paints a picture of himself as the light bringer. <laughs> like he couldn't have been more wrong. And now Marlo's watching him on his, on his deathbed, fearing what comes next, remembering those things. And Marlo has to wrestle with his own soul 
He says, soul. If anybody ever struggled with a soul, I am the man. I had, for my sins, I suppose, to go through that ordeal of looking into myself. No eloquence could have been so withering to one's belief in mankind as his final burst of sincerity. Essentially what he's saying is, if you thought people were generally good, nothing will blow up that belief like a man on his deathbed who is afraid because of all the things he's remembering that he did wrong in his life. In fact, he describes that moment, that horrible change he saw come over Kurtz. And he says, anything approaching the change that came over his features, I have never seen before and I hope never to see again. Oh, I wasn't touched. I was fascinated. It was as though a veil had been rent. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried out in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror, the horror. And those were Kurt's last words. And sometimes we don't want to look into that darkness, into those secrets, into those shadows. It hurts enough to see what's around us without looking in. And yet there can be something really valuable there. I have a friend named James who, um, I, th- I think I've known him for almost 20 years. And as James and I have talked, you know, one of the things that's kind of funny that he told me, it feels a lot about how I felt towards this book. He's told me that he doesn't want to go to church because if he goes to church, they're just going to tell him he's a bad person. And he's not a bad person. He's faithful to his wife. He works hard at his job. In fact, he's a great mentor for other people around him. And that's true. I mean, James is an awesome guy. There are literally people today who are not in jail because James helped them recognize what they were doing wrong in their life and how they could improve it. You know, that, that James was not going to ignore it. He, he was going to mentor it. He was going to mentor them. In fact, I've learned things from him too. You know, some of the best financial tips I've ever gotten came from James. You know, he's good with money. He's in a management position at a major pharmaceutical company. He, he kind of knows what he's talking about. In fact, the other thing that I've really learned from him is kind of how to have a different perspective about issues and conversations around race and people who are different than you. As he's shared with me some of the stories of how, you know, he and and his own kids have struggled. And that's extremely valuable to me because it gives me a perspective I might not have known and helps me kind of grow to be a stronger person. In fact, he will even at times quote things from the Bible that he learned somewhere along the way, even though he's not convinced about all this stuff, he realizes there's really good truth in here that helps us kind of avoid the mistakes, become the person we want to be. And so as we've talked about this, I realized that he's not really afraid that somebody's gonna tell him he's a bad person or that there's stuff he could work on. He loves that, he loves to improve. He loves to help other people do the same thing. I realized what he's really thinking about is condemnation. He doesn't want to feel the condemnation that he would come into a place or read a book or (laughs) read a book, whatever it is, 
that would make him feel like he's not worth it, unforgivable or condemned. And that is what I love about the way that Jesus answers this woman. Check this out. Everybody else around her was ready to condemn her, but look at what Jesus says. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Notice that she calls him Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. No condemnation. Now that's different, right? Everyone else around her was ready to condemn. And if there's one person who could, if Jesus really is God himself in the flesh, the giver of all truth, the creator of the universe, the giver of all morality, perfectly righteous and holy, if anyone could condemn her, it's him. And yet he says, no condemnation. Isn't that what we long for? I mean, think about this. Who would you rather have as judge over you? Jesus, compassionate, merciful, loving, kind, patient. Or Twitter. (laughs) No contest, right? I mean, there is nothing but condemnation on Twitter. There is no forgiveness. There is no mercy. No matter what you did, however big, however little, whether it was yesterday or 30 years ago, whether you're sorry, whether you've changed, whether you promise to change, does not matter. All condemnation. Here's Jesus who says, no condemnation. And I love what he says next because he doesn't just ignore it. He doesn't act like adultery doesn't matter and doesn't hurt people or that God has no standard. He doesn't brush it off and say, I, I, I don't know, we all make mistakes, so you know, whatever, whatever, I don't, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't judge. No, what he says is, let's mentor it. Not ignore it, mentor it. Let's make it better. Go and sin no more. In fact, the next thing he says to anybody else who's listening, that Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You see, when we understand the light that Jesus is bringing, when you understand how his light is first of all to save you from that darkness, to bring us out of it, to take me and give me his goodness, then he also helps us live that way. Then you can bring light with you where you live. Right, that Jesus shines light into me, forgiveness into me, mercy into me, mentorship into me, and then I can shine that light to other people. You know, that bit right there, that's exactly why we do things like authentic manhood. So authentic manhood is a six-week study that we're starting the week after Easter. It's Sunday nights and Monday mornings. I love it because every week is standalone, so if I gotta miss a week, like it's, it's not like I'm way behind. We're doing it live, we're doing it online. But what's really cool about this is we're bringing out Ken Kington, a a comedian, an awesome guy, and a guy who has lived it for the specific topic of fatherhood. Which like, I love my kids and I think I'm doing okay, but there's always these moments that it's like, I think I need some help here. And I can't tell you how some of the simplest things, like what if I was patient with my kids like God was patient with me? Ooh then God, I'm going to need your help. 
And so you would love this, whether you have adult kids that you're still building relationship with, you got kids in the house, or maybe you'll have kids someday. The idea is that you come to authentic manhood, you get really good tips to kind of share light in the world around you and see that it just might be that that solution was here all along, if we understand it. That some of those fantastic tips are actually coming right from the mouth of God. You know, one of those that God has given me is that when I think about his forgiveness, it's easier for me to extend that to others, including my kids. And so as I thought about this this week, it reminded me of a a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Because when he talks about forgiveness, he, he puts a really fine point on it that he says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. Jesus didn't do that either, right? He still called out what had gone wrong and wanted to fix it, even as he forgave. We don't have to pretend it's not real or it's not dark. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. It is the lifting of a burden and the canceling of a debt. In fact, Jesus uses exactly those kinds of words. And Martin Luther King Jr. said himself that he got this idea that he lived it out in the face of injustice, in the face of racism, in the face of enemies, because he had learned it from Jesus and he had seen Jesus do it for him. See, that's the way that when he shines his light to us, we can shine his light to others. You know, another way I saw this recently is is one that you probably have had to experience yourself. Because I know that there have been all kinds of conversations in our country, in our world, but really in our families and in our businesses too. I know that many of you, you are the one who had to decide whether it's COVID, whether it's injustice, whether it's whatever's in the news cycle, do we make a statement as a company? Do we not make a statement? Do we use a hashtag? Do we not use a hashtag? Do we start a committee? Do we, what, what, what do we do? What are the solutions to these things? How, how do we help? Because there's something in us that is desiring to see things I don't know, lighten up <laughs> when the world feels dark. And you know, I was, I was talking to um, a friend of mine over the last few months and I asked him if I could share this with you because he had an experience in the midst of this that I thought was perfect. His company decided that in response to all the conversations around injustice, they wanted to put together kind of a forum where they could just pursue, at least within their own company, Not to pretend they had all the answers for the whole world or you got to do this, 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 and this to prove you're on the right track or whatever, but to at least create a space where they could have conversations and lean towards unity and inclusion, letting people get to know each other. And so when he heard this, he's thinking, oh man, I am middle-aged, white guy, affluent, in a leadership position. (laughs) Like, I think I might be the enemy in a conversation like that. But then he thought, you know what? I, I might be projecting that onto myself because nobody's actually said that to me. I, I might be holding myself back. I'll, I'll go to this thing. I'll check it out. I, I'll see what we can do there. You know, who knows? Maybe I can be part of a solution. And so as he went, there was a, a, a day where he had an opportunity to speak. And so he decided instead of projecting big things and big movements and big plans, he would just tell his own story. And he started by saying, you know, looking at me, there are probably things you would assume about me that might not be true. If you knew how I voted in the election, there might be things you assume about me that might not be true. And so instead, he just started to tell them his story, that he's actually the first person in his family that ever went to college. 
And he just wove through the years of kind of how he ended up at that company and, and where he is today. And what he encouraged them was, what if all of us went to somebody different than ourselves? Let's just start there. So that we're no longer thinking through stereotypes or whatever else. Judging the look on someone's face. What if I just go up to somebody who's different than me and start to get to know them? And as he said that, he's getting like, oh yeah, that's the thing. Like head, sh- head nods all around the room because isn't that what we want? We want to be known. We want to be understood. And at the end, he told them, and in fact, I, I want to do that for other people because I feel like that's what Jesus did for me. Then he got kind of quizzical looks. Really? He said, I'm a Christian. I thought, I thought all Christians were bigots and jerks. <laughs> and yet what he described doing is exactly what Jesus does. And it's what he wants to do for you. That Jesus does not come with condemnation, but to get to know you. That he already knows the darkness, you know, whatever you want to call it, that might be hidden somewhere in here, that I I wish was gone or I'm not even aware of yet. He already knows. And he loves you. And he came for you to build a relationship through forgiveness with you. But then we have a choice to make. Will I reject that? Or will I believe him? In fact, back in John's biography, he uses these words to describe that. Jesus himself is speaking here. He says again, I have come as a light into the world. And whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's Jesus telling you his purpose, to bring light, to save the world. But he goes on, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. See, essentially what he's saying is that all of us ultimately have a choice to either reject his forgiveness, to stay in the dark, or to believe him, that he is who he says he is, that I really do need forgiveness and that He really is the only one who can give it to me. That he really is the only one who can face my darkness, who can heal my need, who can fix the world around us. Because he paints a picture of a glorious future when there is no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more evil. But at least the way the Bible tells it, that only comes through Jesus. And so again, I can't force that on anybody. And I love that Jesus says he's not forcing that on anybody either. It's an invitation to believe in the light of the world. That ultimately the Bible doesn't give us a way around that. That there are times where you may be around people who believe in the light. You know, like my friend at his business, you know, who is able to bring Jesus into a place and it seems to lighten up the room and you'll experience some of those benefits, but ultimately each of us have a choice to make about Jesus himself for ourselves. And so I would just encourage you as you think about that because every one of us is going to have a last day. And that can be terrifying, I know. I, I think sometimes of what Kurt's experienced and his last words or fear as he slipped into darkness and horror. But you know what Jesus' last words were? Well, John, again, in his biography of Jesus, 
That, that loud cry that Luke says Jesus had, that shout of victory, John tells us the words Jesus spoke were, it is finished. Not you are finished, not I'm finished. I've still got a long way to go, but it is finished. The work is done. All of the darkness has been dealt with on the cross and all that's left for me is to receive that from him and go live in the light. So as we close today, maybe that's something you want to think about. Maybe Good Friday, maybe at Easter, maybe exploring authentic manhood. Because that's the way that we can sing, that I'll be all right as long as I can see the light. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are willing to face the darkness for us. Jesus, I want to invite you to help me shine your light to those around me. I thank you for who you are and for what you've done. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.